Okay, so um, the reason we are in Philippians, I am out of town next Sunday, and as I looked at going into Acts chapter 5, I decided that I didn't want to start that this week and then take a week off and then get back to it the following week, because Acts 5, um, if you're familiar with with it, it it moves into a bit of a controversial section of Acts, and, and I didn't want to break it up. Um, so we will get into Acts 5 two Sundays from now. Um, but I wanted to do something just a little, uh, a little different this week. Now, whenever there is a Sunday like this, where I get a little bit of freedom to choose what I want to preach on, um, I typically try to use that as an opportunity to perhaps address uh, pressing issues that are facing our congregation. But as I... Uh, thought and prayed through that this week, I must say I found myself refreshingly stumped. Um, I just had this moment of thanksgiving with the Lord in my own personal study where I just sat back and thought, man, things are really good at TCPC right now. Um, Trauma-free, drama-free, conflict-free. Of course, we're not a perfect congregation. I'd be the first to admit that. Nobody could... um, Nobody could own and list our shortcomings more than me. And perhaps, uh, perhaps personally, you are struggling this morning. And I do want to be sensitive to that. But as far as congregational life goes, I, I feel like a happy pastor of a happy church. And that is a good feeling. We have a really good pastor of community and care. He's just created the most amazing church culture here. And I'm loving it. Now listen, I celebrate that. But it doesn't help sermon prep because I didn't know what to go with this. Um, What do you preach on when things are great? Well, I thought of the book of Philippians for that reason. Uh, Paul dealt with some messed up churches. You don't want to feel good about your church. Go read the New Testament. He he was walking uh, churches through some serious dysfunction. You have the really pagan debauchery and immorality... With the church at Corinth, you have the bitter divisions with the church in Ephesus. You have the heresy that's threatening the gospel in Galatia. Paul knew his dysfunction. But then there were the Philippians. The the church in Philippi began in a very dramatic and powerful way. We'll get to that in Acts. There was a ton of growth. There were conversions happening. There was an outpouring of generosity like we've already seen in Acts where people were just crazy sacrificially giving to the cause. They were all together. They were all getting along. They were all happy. So Paul's letter to the Philippians is void of that customary Pauline rebuke that we are used to. It's actually just written to encourage the Philippians to not be discouraged by the rumors of Paul's imprisonment. Essentially, he says, listen, don't worry about me. I've got Jesus. It's an honor to suffer for him. And he says to them, honestly, thinking about you is bringing me joy in prison. In fact, his only opening complaint, if you're familiar with Paul's writing style, he, he, he greets, he, he writes a greeting, and then he kind of says, hey, here's why I'm writing. And usually that's, you got some problems. But his opening complaint in the letter to the Philippians is that he just so desperately wants to be with them. The only thing he could say is, man, I just wish I was with you all. So it's mostly a letter of thanksgiving and joy, not of rebuke and correction. But that doesn't mean 
that he doesn't have something to teach them. Paul says to this healthy church, he says, you bring me so much joy, but you could bring me even more. I still have something I want to see from your healthy congregation, something that will complete my joy in this congregation. And so that's what I want us to meditate on this morning. What is a church to do when the church is healthy? We're going to see three things. What to do, how to do it, and why to do it. Let's start with the what. Verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in my love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Okay, now just, just stop there for a moment and take that in. Verse 1 says that he has people who are united to Christ, who are experiencing the love of God, who are in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, who are tender and compassionate Now, I have to tell you, if I am a pastor of that church, I'm pretty happy. In fact, I I am a pastor of a church like that, and I am happy with what the Lord is doing. But what's interesting is that Paul wants more from them. He's getting greedy with the Philippian congregation. He is saying, you bring me so much joy already. Now, complete my joy. What is it that would complete the health of of this congregation. He tells them, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul wants unity. He isn't isn't just saying that he wants them to get along because they were already getting along. There were no huge divisions. What he is after, though, is a depth of togetherness that goes far beyond mere politeness. Look at the language here. I want you of the same mind, meaning their thinking is together. To have the same love, their hearts are united together as one. He wants them in full accord. Their ambitions, their vision, their purposes are together as one. Paul doesn't want this congregation getting along. He wants them united together as one in every way. Heart, mind, soul, ambition. Now, if this depth of unity is the completion of Paul's joy, then it means that Paul views this as the highest end of any local congregation. And he's right to view it that way because Jesus viewed it that way. Remember from our series in the upper room, John 17, Jesus prays a final prayer for his followers and for us. Remember, he says, I not only pray for them, I pray for all who are going to believe on account of them. So he prays for his disciples and he prays for the the church worldwide. What is his singular request? Out of everything he could ask the Father for, he says, I pray that they would be one. One. That his followers would be one as he and his Father are one. We are talking Trinitarian type unity here, which is what Paul is describing. Same mind, same love, same accord. That's the Trinity. Diversity completely together in unity. The highest aim of Jesus for his followers and consequently the highest ambition the Apostle Paul has for his churches is oneness. And there's a reason for that. Not only does this most bear witness to our triune God, but this is the final fruit of joy and health within a community. Every parent will tell you, That there is a single determinative factor when it comes to the joy and health of your family. Whether the kids are getting along. Have you ever noticed that? 
We could be, uh, our family could be in the midst of the most amazing vacation. But if our boys are fighting, everyone's miserable. But on the other hand, we could be in the midst of the most mundane or even miserable circumstances. But the boys are laughing and playing and delighting in each other. It's just the greatest thing in the world. The same is true of a congregation. We could be having the greatest things happening. Things that are happening here. Healthy finances, ministry impact, planting churches, missions around the world. You name it, we could have it all. But if we are divided and fighting, none of that matters. The congregation is failing. And the opposite is true. The the economy could tank and we could lose everything. We could have an uprise of persecution from the world against us. Tragedy could strike our congregation in, in deeply traumatic ways. You name it. But if we were one, united together in love, we would be flourishing as a congregation. And so in this way, unity is not a nice thing to have as a local church. It is the highest ambition and greatest aim of a local church. Which is why... Paul wants it so badly for the Philippians and by extension for us. He is saying to them, and and, and I'm saying to you, I I really think it applies here. You're such a great church. You bring me so much joy. Now, complete my joy with this deep and pervasive unity. Never be content with just being nice to one another. But venture further into the depths of Trinitarian oneness. But this seems so lofty, perhaps maybe even unattainable. If he wants us to just get along, that's one thing. But one mind, one heart, one accord, what does that even look like and is that even possible? Well, it is, but it won't be easy. He doesn't just tell the Philippians what to do. He then tells them how to do it. So let's look at that together. Continue on verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceits, but in humility can count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what he does there with those two verses, they have the same pattern to them, if you notice. They, the first half is what not to do, the second half is what to do. And whereas verse 3 is more principled, verse 4 is more practical. So the first half of verse 3 is the principle, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's principally what not to do. First half of the first half of verse four is practically. What does that look like? Let each of you not look to your own interests. Then the second half of each is what to do, both principally and practically. Again, second half of verse three: count others more significant than yourselves. That's the principle. What does that look like? Second half of verse four: look not just to your own interests, but to the interest of others. That's practically what to do. So. The point I'm making is that in principle and in practical terms, Paul is telling us the pathway to this unity that he wants to see through what we are not to do and what we are to do. And I'll make it really simple for us. Selfishness is what we are not to do. Selflessness is what we are to do. This is a total inversion of what comes natural to us. What is natural is to prefer self over others. Paul says unity comes through preferring others more than myself. And when he speaks in practical terms, he uses the language of interests. And that is so important. And more, a more uh, modern word for us there would maybe be preferences. 
It's very, very intentional on his part and important to note. When dealing with orthodox doctrinal issues, Paul was very okay with division. He wanted the people who were preaching the false gospel in Galatia kicked out of there. When dealing with heinous immorality, Paul was very okay with division. He said, get them out of your midst and hand them over to Satan. So he's okay dividing over doctrine and ethics. But when it comes to interests, to preferences, to opinions, Paul is saying, give up what you want so that someone else can have what they want. We never give up orthodoxy for unity. We never give up morality for unity, but we most certainly are called to give up our interests for unity. And Paul is holding this out as the very pathway into this deeper oneness he wants to see. When I die to what I want at TCPC so that you can have what you want at TCPC, and by the way, I hope you know that happens. I hope you do understand that I don't always get what I want for this church. We are Presbyterian. We have a session of elders. We have a pastoral team. And often, or a better way to say it is, if I was king for the day, this place would look different. But I'm not. I'm one who is called to lay down his preferences and opinions so that you and your opinions and your preferences might be even not just considered but championed. And Mark does the same thing. So when I die to what I want at TCPC so that you can have what you want at TCPC, when everyone in a congregation is willing to place their non-essentials, their preferences on the altar, congregational life becomes so deeply unified. So may I preempt the schemes of the devil for a moment. If unity is God's highest ambition for a congregation, then disunity is Satan's highest ambition for a congregation. So brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you now, he is going to try to divide this healthy, happy, growing, making a difference church of ours. Satan exists for the defamation of Jesus Christ and the destruction of the bluegrass. He loathes a church that exists for the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass. Hates it. There's just too much excitement here. There's too much movement of the spirit. There's too many lives being changed for evil to just remain indifferent. So he is coming for us. He is coming for us and he will come at our unity because that is the one thing that could undo all of this. Now I'm going to tell you where he's going to strike. I'm not just going to tell you that he's coming for us. I'm going to tell you where he's going to strike. Not at essentials, but at non-essentials. He's coming for your preferences, for your opinions. What he wants you to do is consider yourself more important than anyone else here and thus canonize your opinion. Now again, this is all preemptive. This is not a passive-aggressive sermon at, at serious issues that are going on. This is all preemptive work. This is his strategy that is coming. And honestly, in the coming months, he's going to have a lot of ammunition. I just sat back and thought about 
what's going to be unfolding at our church in the season to come. And wow, are there things coming that are ripe for opinions and preferences. Our schools and the beginnings of a capital campaign to build a new facility while also hiring our next head of school. There's going to be some opinions there. Even for those of you who don't have a connection to Trinity, but you're members of TCPC and, and have opinions about our school. Of course you do. Now that we have successfully planted Hope Prez, it's time to strategize and plan for the next one. We're not stopping. We've got to do it again. There's going to be some opinions there. Soon you'll be hearing about this year's aggressive budget and our plans for the money that God has and is providing. There'll be opinions there. And uh, we're going to be hiring our next worship director. Now, there, I know y'all got no opinions on music, so we're good there. (laughs) Listen, this is all so exciting. This is so exciting. But exciting times tend to elicit the most passionate opinions. When things are going, and when things are going well, is when people's preferences rise to the surface. Please don't be the one that Satan uses to disunify in the name of your interests. Biblically speaking, collective unity is more important than any personal preference you may have, and that includes mine. So I will commit... And ask you to commit, not just to laying down my own interests, but to actually considering the interest of others as more important than mine. I mean, talk about, the, talk about the inverse of a church life that people have come to expect. What do people think of when they think of churches? A community of people competing to get what they want. Could you imagine the witness? Could you imagine the testimony? And this is, by the way, why this is the highest priority that Jesus has for the church. Could you imagine what our world would do with a community competing for others to get what they want? Satan would hate that and God would love that. What to do when things are going well? Recommitment to more unity, more oneness. How to do it? Look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. But why? We're lacking motivation here and we need it because I don't know about you, but I like my opinions. I have my interests. And for me to take up this cause to actually lay them down for yours, I need more than just unity for unity's sake. That's not enough. Well, Paul grounds his request, as he always does, with gospel motivation. And let's close with that. We've seen what to do. We've seen how to do it. Let's ponder together why to do it. Verse 5. Have this mind, a better translation may be in our language, have this attitude among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He, sa- he says, what I'm asking you to do is already in you, and it's in you because you're in Christ. If you have Jesus, you already have this, but now you need to live it out. And then what he does by way of motivation is he just lets the humility of Jesus shine. Don't tell Jesus this is impossible. Because that is precisely what he himself has done. Let's ponder these breathtaking words as we watch the interests of Jesus die for the interest of others. Three of the most powerful, beautiful words in scripture. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That wording confuses some. 
This is its meaning. He had it all. All equality with God. All of heaven and earth belong to him. He is God. But he did not consider his status as God as a thing to be grasped. Meaning not as a thing to be grasped for. But that he had it as something. And he did not consider that as something to be held onto with unclenched fists. Instead he opened his hands. Laid down his own rights. Released what was his and his preferences. Stepped down from his eternal throne. And left it all behind. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He became man. He took upon himself our context, our small, pitiable estate. You want to talk about choosing our preferences over his own. Eternal God to man. The eternal one bound by time. The omnipresent one bound by space. The omnipotent one bound by weakness. This is astounding. But he's not done. He's just getting started. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The source of all life gives gives, gives way to death But this was not just a death. It says even death on a cross. Now that's not just talking about the pain of of the crucifixion. Many of us have experienced, many people have experienced painful deaths. When he says cross, you know what he's talking about. Christ hung from the tree of judgment. He plunged the depths of humanity's great curse. He bore the dreadful destiny of our rebellion. He faced the righteous fury that my sins deserve. In three breathtaking verses, our Savior has moved from a climactic crown to a cursed cross. Now, who among us has the audacity to say they cannot give up their interest for the interest of others? Who dare calls themselves a follower of Jesus while clinging with clenched fists to their preferences? Why do we do this? Why would we ever be a people that does the unnatural and unthinkable look not just to our interests but to the interests of others? Because we are a people of Jesus. We are those who have had this done for us. So, by way of application, I would like for you to just name your opinion. Name your preference. I know you have them. It's okay. He, he recognizes it in the passage. He says, look, not only to your interests, he knows you have interests, but to prioritize the interests of others. So, I want you to name your opinion. Not your orthodoxy. We're uncompromising there. Not your morality. We're uncompromising there. Your preference. A mentor of mine in ministry, he helped me conceptualize the, the burden of the pastorate this way. He said, you know, it's, it's essentially learning to navigate with, with humility and charity and love and graciousness, yet with firmness and boldness and courage and all those different attributes. He said, it's essentially learning to navigate the opinions of the masses. He said, you know, just go ahead and throw out the members who are always discontent and they've got their endless list of opinions on everything. He said, just set that aside. You know, don't listen to them. 
be done with that. He said, just, just think of those, he said, who come with good intentions, who really do love you and the church and what you're doing. These, these members who come and say to you, I love you. I love everything about this church. You know, there's just this one thing. He said, Robert, you know, at a church with a membership role like you have, if you had everybody happy but with just one thing, you're dealing with a thousand one things. So what's your one thing? This isn't about me. And, and, and I, listen, I, this, is, this is a part of the ministry. It's part of the cross of ministry. And, and certainly, we, I hope our session has demonstrated we are, we are more than open to feedback. That's not the point of the sermon. This is about unity. It's about unity. I would like for you to name that one thing. If you are a person with a long list of discontentment, you have many things, then we may just not be the church for you. It's okay. Mark can get with you and help you find a church that would work better for you. That's fine. We'd support you in that. I'm talking about the there's just one thing, members. I want you to name it and then ask if you are willing to lay that non-essential on the altar for the greater purpose of unity. You may get your one thing. I mean, chances are you will. We're a very like-minded, loving, altogether congregation. So chances are our wants end up being manifested. But man, wouldn't it be great if you didn't get it because you fought for it, but because your neighbor fought for it for you? Would you willing to lay down your one non-essential and say oneness is vastly more important than my one thing? This is a happy congregation. This is a healthy congregation. Let's not settle. Let's make this a complete congregation by looking not to our own interests, but to the interest of others. Let me pray. Lord, we, this goes against everything inside of us. We wake up and all day long, Lord, we are tempted to seek our own interests. And so we need your grace every week, but we need a special measure of grace, of gospel grace, of the news that you lay down your interests, your preferences for us. You need, we need to be filled with that so that we can therefore be strengthened and empowered to do likewise. And so what a perfect time to come to your table and be reminded that though you were in the form of God, you did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but that you humbled yourself, taking on the form of human likeness and being found in that form, you became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This table signifies that descent for our sake. So would you feed us now with the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen.